0: Welcome back to our continued conversation about Latinx hermeneutics. This is our second podcast in a series. Hermeneutics, as we discussed in the first episode, is about the diverse ways we read and the power dynamics involved in reading. In this podcast, we're going to talk about how we learned that ways of reading, especially ways of reading the Bible, are diverse and laden with power, and yet there are norms to how we read and that those norms are socially determined. I'm Jacqueline Hidalgo. I'm Associate Professor of Latina Latino Studies at Williams College. And I'm Kay
1: Higuera-Smith, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Azusa Pacific
0: University. Oh, hello, Kay. Great to talk to you again. I want to start by asking you, how did you get interested in hermeneutics? I go
1: to school as an undergrad, then I uh, get into graduate school because I'm really interested in hermeneutics. I mean, this, was, this caught me and got me really interested. Why do different people read the Bible differently and, uh, and yet make such authoritative claims about their own interpretations? And on one level, you know, there's this sort of sophomoric line going around saying, oh, you can make the Bible say anything you want. I don't think you can. I think there are outside bounds, outside of which you, it, you can't make it say something. <laughs> so, so there's this story of the rich ruler, In Luke's version, he's a ruler, and uh, in Luke 18, and he comes to Jesus and he says to him, good teacher, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And... Jesus says, uh, you know, well, you know the commandments, do them all. And the young ruler says, well, I've done them all. And Jesus says, well, one thing you still need, and that is uh, give, sell all that you own and give it to the poor. And he leaves very sad because he's rich. Now, you can interpret that two ways. You could interpret it as sort of a guideline that... Um, You have to put the kingdom of God or the realm of God before your wealth, which is how maybe a rich suburbanite in Orange County, California, might interpret it. Or you could interpret it as a model for how we need to live, which is how maybe a peasant in Honduras might interpret it. But there's not going to be any interpreting community that interprets it to mean, oh yeah, just go ahead and, and live this life of debauchery and self-aggrandizement at the expense of poor, and you're cool. That is That interpretation is not allowed. So when we're talking about flexibility of interpretation, we're not using this sophomoric idea that, oh, you can make the Bible say anything you want. There are outside bounds. However, both of those interpretations are tied to a certain social, historical, political, economic experience. Mm -hmm.
0: Although I think in making decisions about what kinds of interpretations one can make, I mean, the fact that we can't make your last total fantastical interpretation, I think that is still a socially constructed norm. I'm not saying I agree with you. I like to say that it's not so much that the text means any fixed things, but within our norms of reading, there are things the text can mean and things it can't. Fair enough. But that said, it's because we make certain decisions about that. And I think we see very much that there are people who, rather than engage in making this text mean one thing or another, they just ignore it. And so that's also one of the options that people people take up. Um But I wanted to really also return to this question that you brought up uh, when you started your story about how you got interested in the way that people can claim this text has fixed meaning, that they can play authoritative power games with it, and yet it's so evident that it doesn't have one fixed meaning, that there's such a diversity of meanings in what they're doing. How is it that you came to realize that?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm going to want to ask you that too, so think about it for yourself too. I think for me, of course, it's something that I realized all along the way constantly. I'm constantly surprised and interested in how the biblical text gets used Mm. to construct certain claims for normativity, for certain claims, certain norms, certain regulations, regulatory claims. I think one of the ones that stands out to me is I'm in a Bible class, and I'm studying the New Testament Gospels, and I'm reading the story of Barabbas, who is the guy that um, Pilate brings up and says, hey, do you want Barabbas or Jesus? So, I always thought about Barabbas as this really horrible guy. He's a murderer, you know, and how could the people pick him to be released over Jesus because Pilate gives them this choice. Who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? And um, I even think of the movie that Mel Gibson did so Mel Gibson did this movie back in 2004 called The Passion of the Christ, and it, was, it drew from a lot of very traditional kind of dominant culture themes. And in that movie, Barabbas doesn't even look human. He's a monster. He's got these bulging eyes and this really weird, horrible skin, and his hair is all messed up. and He looks like this gargoyle from the Middle Ages, And it actually ties in very nicely to how many Christians from the Middle Ages portray Jewish people in general. So that's kind of the view that's out there about Barabbas. Then I learned about the effect of the Roman Empire on the New Testament and how the Jewish people, or the Judeans and the Galileans in this era were colonized people. They were oppressed by Rome. They were under the Roman boot. They had no human rights, no civil rights, and so Barabbas is a guy who would have been sort of a Robin Hood figure. He, he led an insurrection, which if you were one of those people under the boot and you did not have enough food to feed your children and somebody wanted to lead an insurrection against that horribly oppressive group, you would say, release him. And that was a big aha moment for me in understanding that the way the Bible had been conveyed to me was fraught with all sorts of power claims that were not
0: necessarily legitimate. So you had also wanted me to talk about Uh, when I realized that perspective mattered. Yeah, tell me your story. And I think it's very telling that my story, and bear with me for a minute, listeners, this is going to be a little bit long, my story is not necessarily about debating the content meaning of the text. I think it's telling because of the sort of scholar I am. It's about a moment when when I realized that the Bible could be very different things to different people. And it... It instilled in me a question about what the Bible is in and of itself. And I want to return to that at the end of my story. But my story is this. I'm a first-year seminary student at Union Theological Seminary in New York. I am 23 years old. I grew up in a pretty liberal, progressive Catholic home. We had Bibles, to be sure. But for me, the Bible was just this fantastic text with all of these fabulous tales, some of them horrible, some of them funny, some of them about this great guy named Jesus who'd been really important. But it was not necessarily a compendium of the literal word of God for me. I can't say that I would have known what Catholic teaching on the Bible was. Catholics have a very specific teaching on what the Bible is. I didn't grow up with that. I just grew up with the Bible was this sort of fun thing uh, with some horrible things in it, but still somehow fun. At the same time, I grew up in in high school. I was in Kansas City, and I'm a Catholic in a in a school dominated by white evangelical Christians. And for me, I perceive their interpretations of the Bible to be horribly mean about other people. And so I, I don't think about the Bible as, I don't think about its meaning per se, and except to think that I don't like the way evangelicals read the Bible in this context. I don't mean to say all evangelicals, but in that moment as a teenager, that's how I felt. And I could not understand their relationship with so, the Bible at all. So even as a high
1: schooler, You really were doing hermeneutics. I didn't know it. but You didn't know it, but (laughs) you were doing it.
0: I didn't know it, but I was was perceiving this disconnect between their relationship to the Bible and mine. But all I saw was that theirs was wrong, which is not fair to them. But I just saw that theirs was wrong. So I'm a first-year seminary student. In my very first class with James Cone, it's a survey of 20th century theology. He makes us write as an opening exercise a sort of two-page personal reflection on our theology, a kind of confessional statement, if you will, but where we're supposed to talk about our our sense of an encounter with God. And I talk about being a, a, a young girl learning some basics about astronomy and looking up at the night sky and thinking there's a nice guy up there, but looking up yeah. at the night sky and being, wow, this, this created universe is amazing. It's so vast and I'm so small and, and just being overawed by that. My friend who hailed from an African-American Pentecostal background and was pursuing ordination in a mainline Protestant denomination, she instead talks to me about how for her, her encounter with God is really about the verse in Romans and where Paul talks about how there's basically nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this verse was so important to my friend in a variety of ways, coming from an African American context also having already been ministering to LGBTQ folk this was real evidence of the divine power of love and she encountered that in her relationship with the bible and more than that what she pointed out to me is that this was really important that she could encounter God in the Bible because it was a check on what for her were the negative ways that certain kinds of liberal Christians encountered God, which is instead of checking themselves and their own power through the relationship they had with the Bible— they found themselves to experience God by trying to be God and how they would quote-unquote serve brown and black people by doing their sorts of missionary work that was really, in her view, about dominating these people that they didn't consider fully human. So for her, the relationship with the Bible as a check on that kind of arrogance was really important. And in talking to her, I realized That one could have this profound relationship with the Bible that was not my own and it was not going to be the relationship that I had, but that it was valuable and that it was meaningful and it meant that we were going to need to be trained with different tools and different practices because our relationship with the Bible was different, but both meaningful in their own way. And I think that is actually what allowed me to then pursue the form of study of the New Testament that I pursued with Vincent Wimbush at at Claremont, because it was one that was asking and pushing us to think about what is the Bible doing socially? What are humans doing with this text and with other kinds of texts like it? What does it mean for something to be scripture in different ways?
1: And it's interesting because both of us are Latinas, but you had James Cone, who recently passed away but was a a renowned and uh, wonderful uh, black liberation theologian, and Vincent Wimbush, also African-American scholar, really cultural critic as well as biblical scholar. I came at the question through Jewish scholars. So neither of us was trained by Latinx scholars. And yet we found that our Latinx identity really led to uh, a different way of reading mm-hmm. and in my case, uh, what I first came with from my Jewish uh, mentors was the idea that different social groups bring different questions to the text, and that this is why we need these different readings because The urgent questions come out of our social experience. So when you bring together my experience, the urgent questions, what are the urgent questions that come out of my own experience as a Latinx female and your your experience which taught you to ask what is the Bible, what work is the Bible doing? How is the Bible performing and being performed in order to accomplish certain work in society? Um, I think both of us have come with sort of different angles, but have come together to ask a lot of questions about meaning. And in that sense, I know for me, as I've mentioned, uh, as a Latina specifically gender issues come into play, questions of machismo that, that I grew up with in the larger Latino culture, questions of, uh, of being outside, because for me, and you mentioned it in your high school, for me being not part of the dominant culture in the United States was very shaping for me as a human being. Also, I also grew up Catholic, although I became Protestant when I was a late teenager, but my Catholicism has shaped me deeply in who I am as a human being. All of these elements, and we don't have enough time even in this one podcast to go through all of the ways that our Latinx experience shapes not only the questions we ask, but the lens that we use to see how the Bible is put to work.
0: And I'd also want to say that I think you're pointing to a couple of other really relevant issues here, which is that... Our Latinx experiences have been diverse and they've been open to diversity. And I really appreciated the point you made that it is specifically through other minoritized communities that we were able to learn and think about our own issues because there were Jewish and African-American scholars and thinkers who had been working on these questions and were willing to work with us on ours. This has been a
1: great conversation. Uh, We have lots more to talk about. So we have the third episode coming up. uh, And in that episode, we're going to talk about gender and hermeneutics, looking at the pop culture example of the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Hopefully, all of you can join us for that episode.
0: Thank you, Kay. It was always a pleasure to talk to you. I look forward to next time. Thanks, Jackie.
1: Cuando se despertó no le quedaba nada, la pasión se le.